0: When Southern California's San Onofre nuclear reactors were finally shut down in 2013, residents throughout the region breathed a sigh of relief because the threat of a radiation accident was over. Wasn't it? Well, fast forward to right now, as owner-operator Southern California Edison is attempting to get out of Dodge and leave behind just a little souvenir of its time running those reactors, the so-called spent fuel rods, which were riddled with plutonium. And in order to learn the truth about what's really going on at the San Onofre site, you have to go to a deeply committed local citizen who has been working on San Onofre issues since she moved from Japan after Fukushima. And she tells you,
1: We were left a six point. 3 million pounds of nuclear waste it is stranded at San Onofre Beach in thin walled Holtec international canisters with a defective loading system scratching and gouging the canisters these canisters are only warranted for 25 years nor are they seismically rated so essentially Southern Cal Edison purchased the cheapest canisters they could this waste is buried 100 feet from the Pacific Ocean and one foot above naturally occurring water tables. Climate change predicts that rising seas and extreme weather events like flooding, tsunami, and the marine layer environment will only hasten the corrosion of these canisters.
0: Gee, thanks Southern California Edison. That's quite a legacy. What a long-lasting reminder of your incompetence and lack of care for people and the environment. And we the people don't appreciate it. So when we learn about SCE's attempt to bury what's nothing short of multiple Chernobyl's worth of high-level radioactive waste, dirty bombs on the beach, in the middle of 8 million people, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have all been forced into that dangerous radioactive seat, the one that we all share.
2: Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking, our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are
1: linking.
2: Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: It's the bomb.
0: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away so I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, it's our 10th anniversary of weekly podcast productions, and we celebrate by checking in with two of our ongoing stories. We talk with Kathy Awani of the Samuel Lawrence Foundation about how Southern California Edison is preparing to walk away from its legacy of high-level radioactive waste created while it was operating the San Onofre nuclear reactors, and how close they are to getting away with it. Citizen activist alert. Grassroots actions are the only thing that can stop this from happening, and we'll tell you how to get involved. And we check in again with last week's featured interviewee, Dave Kraft, head of Nuclear Energy Information Service in Chicago, on a new and possibly hopeful piece of breaking news that might slow or stop the intended $700 million-plus bailout of Exelon's unprofitable nuclear power plants in that state. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than was officially and publicly mentioned at the G7 conference. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 15, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. First, an update on a still-evolving story. Last week, on Nuclear Hot Seat No. 520, I interviewed Dave Kraft, Director of the Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, on the proposed Illinois state bailout of Exelon's nuclear reactors. And wouldn't you know it, at the exact moment that I was putting the show all over social media, news came through of an important new development in this story, one that has national and perhaps international implications. And it could slow, stall, or perhaps even stop the bailout. So, of course, I contacted Dave Kraft to learn the latest, which we recorded on Saturday, June 12, 2021. Dave Kraft. What was that piece of information, and what does it portend?
3: The information was a filing that took place by one of Exelon's business partners, if you can believe they have them, a company called EDF, which is related to the French EDF, of course. And they do business together in the state of New York. The strange filing, though, was that their partner, EDF, filed with the State Public Utilities Commission in New York, asking them to slow down this proposed spin-off company that Exelon was attempting to create out of its nuclear plants. Earlier this year at their annual meeting, they announced to their shareholders that the company was gonna be divided up. They were gonna put all the nuclear plants in one company, which they don't have a name for, so they called it SpinCo, meaning they're spinning them off. And the other one was gonna be all of the regulated utilities like Commonwealth Edison and the ones in the regulated markets, which have a guaranteed annual profit. So their partner got very nervous about this and pointed out a number of interesting facts, which we have been attempting to point out to the legislators here in Illinois as well, that this company is a virtual unknown. There is no board of directors. There is no street address. There are no assets. And if you do set up this company, as if if you set it up as an LLC, there will be literally no financial backing for those nuclear reactors that are already losing money, except the rates that they can charge in the markets that they exist in, and their property assets, which are useless if you don't use them as a nuclear plant. This is very interesting to us, that if their own business partner is saying, slow this thing down, that should send red flags up everywhere in the Exelon market, that uh, something is not quite right, it needs to be examined in much more detail.
0: To what extent do you believe that the legislators in Illinois, who will be within weeks, if not days, considering this bailout, how aware do you think they are of this latest development and its implications?
3: There's two answers to that. Many of them should be very aware because we sent the article on to them and said, pay attention to this. For us, it's a good reason not to blindly grant bailouts to the Exelon nuclear reactors here in Illinois, because we don't even know who's gonna own them in a few months. We have gotten no responses from any of the legislators or from the governor's staff about this. Now, as of this taping, we've been told that in the coming week, on Tuesday the 15th, the Illinois Senate will be voting on the Illinois energy legislation. And on the following day, the Wednesday the 16th, the House will take it up and vote. As we have heard now, The bill is this sort of a Frankenstein of everybody's input over the last several months. We say that they dropped all the legislation in a legematic and turned on the switch and something will be coming out this week. We still hear that there are competing versions and competing bills, though. Governor Pritzker has his own idea of what it should look like. And apparently the Senate is writing its own draft as well. So we don't know how this competition is going to get resolved. The final development that we did hear though today is that the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition has formally voted to support the governor's version of whatever legislation comes out, which will include a nuclear bailout. And one of the concerns we've raised is that this proposed bailout from the governor has escalated from the $350 million over five years that was recommended by his hired independent auditor earlier this year. That ballooned out to around 540 million in the second iteration. Then it went up to 600 million. And just the other day, a news account came out that they're talking now close to 700 million for five years. So this thing is expanding a little bit slower than the rate that the universe is expanding, but it is expanding inexorably.
0: What impact might the EDF filing in New York State as regards their partnership with Exelon have on Illinois? And might that be a way of slowing the vote, stopping the vote, reconsidering what is being voted on,
3: anything at all in that range? What the filing is about are the license transfers of all of these nuclear plants that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to approve. And Exelon has nuclear plants in four or five states. So in order to put all of these into this spin SPINCO or whatever it's called, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to approve it. However, the state of New York's attorney general, I believe, is going to be filing some comments with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the business partner, EDF, has filed with the Public Utilities Commission in New York to slow things down because they want more detail about what this company is going to look like, how it's going to operate, what are its financial backing? Now, you asked what the impact would be in Illinois. The same for other parties who have to be sign off and give their approval as well. We do understand that the Illinois Attorney General's office has entered this uh, filing with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We don't know the details of it, but it does sound like there are a lot of skeptical observers who are required to sign off on this in order for the deal to go through. So it's, it definitely could slow things down a lot, particularly if a business partner says, hold up. You'll know by next Wednesday or Thursday what the situation in Illinois is.
0: Thanks so much, Dave, for giving us part of your Saturday.
3: Great, will be, Thank you very much.
0: That was Dave Kraft of Nuclear Energy Information Service, NEIS, headquartered in Chicago. A link to a downloadable PDF of the crane's story will be available on our website NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 521. And we will, of course, stay in touch with Dave and bring you all the developments in this story as they happen. The big story in this week's news is out of China. On Monday, June 14, a CNN report revealed the presence of a rare gas leak in the first nuclear power station in the world equipped with a French third-generation EPR, or Pressurized Water Reactor, design. According to CNN, an increase in the concentration of certain rare gases was discovered in a circuit of the nuclear power plant of Taishan in Guangdong Province on the north shore of the South China Sea. Earlier that morning, CNN reported it as a possible radioactive leak. Framatome, the EDF subsidiary that participated in the construction of the Taishan reactors, sent a memo to the American Department of Energy on June 8 mentioning a possible leak in this plant, and requested authorization for U.S. technical assistance to resolve what they called an imminent radiological threat. The response from Chinese safety authorities is to raise the acceptable limits of radiation outside the Taishan nuclear power plant to avoid having to shut down the reactors. These new levels exceed French standards. It is currently unclear as to how that compares to U.S. limits. Both reactors remain in operation. According to Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, earlier in June, a BBC story reported on the deterioration of a coating material on some of the fuel rods at Taishan Unit 1. The degradation resulted in the buildup of noble gases in the reactor, predominantly xenon and krypton, both of which are radioactive and which can reduce power generation efficiency. Consequently, according to the BBC report, the Chinese state-owned operator deliberately released the gases from the reactor after treatment. It wasn't a massive release of radioactivity, but this was not a routine event. As for the American response, the Biden administration believes the facility is not yet at a quote-unquote crisis level. However, concern was significant enough that the National Security Council, State Department, and Department of Energy held multiple meetings last week as they monitored the situation. This raises concerns in the U.K. because the new reactors, the new designs, are run by EDF, who are also building a new reactor at Hinkley to the exact same specifications. And speaking of nuclear problems in the U.K., here's this week's outstanding example of nuclear boneheadedness,
1: NUCLEAR
0: HOT SEED! NUCLEAR HOT
2: SEED! NUCLEAR HOT SEED! None nuts OUT the WEEK! Want to
0: know what to do with that plutonium-contaminated waste from decommissioning nuclear reactors? If it's metal, and you're in the UK, why not consider it scrap and recycle it as, well, just plain metal? Radiation-Free Lakeland reports that up to 160 shipping containers of radioactive scrap metal have shown up at the Cycle Life EDF Metal Recycling Facility at the Port of Workington in Cumbria, the Lake District, about 300 miles from London. And this radioactive mess was shipped in with absolutely no public warning, discussion, or even a vote by city councilors to permit it. Nor has there been any assessment of the radiological risk to nearby residents. They just, oops, forgot to mention it to the public. So the Environment Agency could imply that there was no interest in the issue from the locals and approve the permit. But there is plenty of interest, especially from radiation-free Lakeland. Still, until they get this turned around, make certain that the next time you shop for a belt buckle, you take a Geiger counter along, just in case. And that's why, UK Environment Agency, PsychLife, and wherever this radioactively contaminated pile of metal was sourced, you are this week's... Nuclear hot
2: seat,
0: none that sound week. EDF Energy, the owner and operator of the UK's operational nuclear fleet, is closing and moving to defueling two gas-cooled reactors at Dungis B nuclear plant in Kent, 50 miles from London. Both units had been in an extended outage since September of 2018. And with the current summit taking place in Geneva, Switzerland, between U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin, Beatrice Finn, head of the... Nobel Peace Prize-winning International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, said she believed it was possible that it could mark a turning point and yield a pledge for new nuclear arms talks. She said, These two countries hold over 90% of the world's nuclear arsenals. These two individuals basically have the ability to end the world as we know it. What is important is that there is an ambition expressed to reach zero, and start chipping away at the nuclear arsenals. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Ten full years of weekly nuclear hot seat production. Who could have imagined it? Not me. When I started this show on June 14, 2011, I had no idea how long I'd be able to do it, or even if anyone was interested in listening. Little did I realize that a full decade later... The show and I would be up, running, and listened to every week in the furthest reaches of the planet. We have listeners on six continents, from Brazil to Saskatchewan, Mongolia to France, Japan to South Africa, New Zealand to Portugal. I even had someone visiting Antarctica who tried to get us that elusive seventh continent, but she couldn't get a decent Wi-Fi signal. The show is now cited in over 80 academic books and articles, with more showing up every month. There are 10,000-plus backlinks to specific episodes from websites around the world. Nuclear Hot Seat has evolved into an important international resource for nuclear information. But now, the online world is evolving, and it is not in our favor. Google is changing its algorithms to favor websites that load the fastest. And if you don't do the necessary upgrading and reconfiguring of your site, even if people put in the proper search terms, you, we, will not be found. And neither will our issues. That is why Nuclear Hot Seat has committed to going through a total website rebuild. This is not a cosmetic moving around of the pieces into a pretty new template. It's a back-end rebuild and upgrade to bring the website into alignment with how the Internet works now. It is a massive job. And as you can imagine, it's not inexpensive to get that work done. I have found the right company with the right skills and the willingness to cut the show an amazing deal. I believe it has something to do with the company's founder being a new father and understanding that Nuclear Hot Seat is fighting for his daughter's future. Still, it's a chunk of money, and I need your help to raise it. Yes, go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and do what you can. Every $5 is a help in getting us in that direction. I'm developing bonuses for donations of $100 or more, and if you have the ability to donate $500 or more, We can discuss a specific bonus tailored to you and your group's needs. A private webinar, consultation, radiation protection advice. We'll figure out something that will work for you. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat and want to see us continue to be found online, now is the time to support us with a donation. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, the red Donate button. That's where you leave a one-time or a monthly donation of any size. And if you'd like to discuss making a larger donation, contact me at info at nuclearhotseat.com and we'll set up a time to talk. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, you have my gratitude. Now here's this week's featured interview. The San Onofre nuclear reactors are a story that won't go away. To explain what we're up against, I spoke with Kathy Iwani. She has a postgraduate degree in Japanese and taught English in the public and private sector in Japan for 25 years. Since moving to Southern California from Japan after Fukushima, she has been an interpreter for former Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan for the public education panel entitled Fukushima, Ongoing Lessons. Kathy is a board member of the Samuel Lawrence Foundation and remains engaged in the effort to educate the public about the risks of nuclear waste. This is what she does with us now, and we spoke on Sunday,
2: June 13, 2021. Kathy Awani, it is so good to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hopseed.
1: Thank you for having me back, Libby. It's a pleasure.
2: Let's start with some background about the San Onofre nuclear generators. They were permanently shut down as of June 7, 2013, which is almost exactly eight years ago. What were the circumstances
1: that led up to that shutdown? The circumstances leading up to the shutdown, number one, we had, fortunately for the public, there were several whistleblowers, and we found out that they were keeping undercover a radiation leak. I think it was end of January 2012, and basically with the worst safety record in the United States of all nuclear power plants, they were really digging their own grave.
2: And when you say they, you're referring to the owner-operators of San Onofre, which is Southern California Edison, or SCE. Correct. And what were the circumstances that came up that led to the shutdown?
1: Southern Cal Edison had a steam generator defect, defectively installed, defectively designed, leading to a radiation leak in 2012 and problems left and right uh, regarding their safety record, regarding whistleblowers left and right coming out against unsafe work practices. When you say unsafe practices, can you be
2: more specific about how San Onofre was ranked in terms
1: of nuclear reactors around the country? This is even after shutdown. They were found to have almost dropped a 50-ton thin-walled canister while loading. It was held for about 25 minutes on a quarter lip ridge part of the loading system. This was not made clear until someone who was our whistleblower at that time came out in a public meeting, community engagement panel meeting, sponsored by Edison, came out and said, you won't, I'm surprised it's been a week, you haven't heard any, any of this. And so that was one of many foibles.
2: I understand San Onofre was ranked as the worst run or the worst safety record of any of the nuclear reactors in the country.
1: That's correct.
2: Looking back eight years ago, I think some of us, myself included, were naive in thinking that the shutdown would mark the end of the problems at San Onofre, and we would all step back and relax and have a good time of it. But the journey since closure has been fraught, to put it mildly. It's impossible to overstate the case, but I'm trying to not go hysterical with it. What has happened since that announcement of the permanent shutdown that we
1: need to be aware of? You're exactly right. We thought, oh, it's closed. The the witch is dead. The biggest uphill battle started in June of 2013 when it was closed down. So we were left with 6.3 million pounds of nuclear waste. It is stranded at San Onofre Beach. In thin-walled Holtec International canisters with a defective loading system, scratching and gouging the canisters. These canisters are only warranted for 25 years. Nor are they seismically rated. So essentially, Southern Cal Edison purchased the cheapest canisters they could. This waste is buried 100 feet from the Pacific Ocean and one foot above naturally occurring water tables. Climate change predicts that rising seas and extreme weather events like flooding, tsunami, and the marine layer environment will only hasten the corrosion of these canisters. Not only that, but it sits on the intersection of Newport, Inglewood, Elsinore, and San Andreas fault lines. And so we have proof that it's located in a tsunami inundation zone. There are geological markers Proving History of Tsunami Inland from San Onofre, and much to our joy and surprise, Lawrence O'Donnell and his show The Last Word last week, he covered the problems of San Onofre last week on his show, explained that this area was originally on an 1855, the year 1855 map, entitled Earthquake Bay. So it's not, it's no coincidence that we don't have this in the news, nor does Southern Cal Edison speak to the fact that this map is in existence.
2: So when you say thin wall canisters, how thin are we
1: talking here? Five eighths of an inch steel canisters.
2: That's it between us and how much waste and what is the half-life of the
1: radiation in the waste? there have been a lot of scientists who have actually spoken on this. And what we do know is that it is high level. High level waste means it is hotter than hot. The NRC actually has increased the level of hotness, as it were, the level of radioactivity in these canisters. And so everyone says, get the waste out of there, get the waste out of there. But the real problem being is that everything is buried in dry waste canisters however they are much of this waste is even too hot to even move still and and much of it will not even be cool enough to move until 2030 if i'm not mistaken a lot of people have said in each canister we have 3.6 million pounds of it on the beach there in each canister there is enough radiation if we were to have an outlier event, let's say terrorism, let's say a terrible tsunami, let's say the big one, the big earthquake that will, of course, never happen. FCE, Southern Cal Edison would have you believe it will never happen. It's a non-issue, a non-event. If that were to happen in each canister, you would effectively have the leaking of radiation for one Chernobyl Accidents. So they often refer to these in the media as a mobile Chernobyl. Each canister is referred to as a mobile Chernobyl. And that, of course, is an outlier event. No one wants to look at the possibility, but it does take one bad day for an outlier event to happen.
2: I remember growing up that the edict was always hope for the best and plan for the worst. Don't ever assume the worst won't happen. Just make certain that if it does, you're prepared for. And this seems to turn that adage right on its head.
1: Exactly. The NRC lack of regulations allow Southern Cal Edison to end off-site emergency planning for any nuclear emergency as soon as the plant shut down. This is something that they say, oh no, no, no. They, They tell us at the community engagement meetings. No, no, no. We have people on staff. We have a nurse on staff. We have people on site to help in case of an emergency. Well, let's take a look at this scenario. We have the one outlier event, a terrorist event, a cyber attack event, or God forbid, an earthquake. What is the general public with it living within 50 miles of San Onofre? What are they going to do when 8.4 million people hear about a radiation leak? Because they always tell you there's no, no harm. You know, It's not a long-term serious problem. That's always the first media event i'm sure you're very well aware of that
2: that's at the top of the playbook the list of things that they automatically say no matter what happens before they know anything
1: exactly and so you have highway five and good luck that is the only corridor okay it's a huge corridor for trade it's a huge corridor for evacuation and imagine that imagine 8.4 million people trying to evacuate on highway five it's as bad as it gets during regular traffic so this is just silliness one issue is that there is no proven repair method for a canister let's say in an outlier event this is what we are very concerned about Southern Cal Edison says they will use a metallic spray paint to repair but this metallic alloy spray paint has never been used in the industry nor has the NRC approved this method. No one will talk about how to repair canisters in an outlier event like earthquake, terrorist attack, cyber attack, or tsunami because it's never happened before. And therefore, it's a quote-unquote non-issue. Don't worry about it.
2: Don't worry your pretty little head about it, Missy. Exactly.
1: Exactly.
2: So Edison is trying to say that, well, if there's a radiation leak, not saying what the nature of it is or how large a crack or a breach in a canister might be, they're just going to spray some paint over it and it should be fine even though there's no proof of this. What if any other provisions have been made in case there is such a thing as a leak, a crack, a breach, a compromise of the containment system?
1: That is the crux of the problem. Southern Cal Edison's plan was to deconstruct the spent fuel pools. That was their original plan. And what these spent fuel pools are, essentially cooling pools where these fuel rods, spent fuel rods, are placed in these in these pools to cool them down enough so that they can then be packaged into dry waste canisters. And so everything has now thus far been packaged and it's underground. According to nuclear experts, the last available means to mitigate a problem with helium pressure loss in the canisters and other unforeseen events is by retaining those cooling pools. Fortunately, Samuel Lawrence Foundation's public interest lawsuit proceedings called for a temporary restraining order, essentially preventing Southern Cal Edison from touching the cooling ponds. The good news is that SCE agreed to leave one pool this is a may 28th this year the utility agreed to halt any work that would demolish dismantle or remove or make dysfunctional the unit three spent fuel pool so that was an early victory for us we have to definitely celebrate the tiny victories because this gives us anytime you can get some time you go back to your team and you go back to the drawing board and you try to work with that Edison offered the partial settlement after our attorney applied for a temporary restraining order to halt, and the utilities mad dash to scuttle this TRO, temporary restraining order, shows just how nervous they are about the merits of our public interest lawsuit.
2: Explain what this public interest lawsuit is, what it intends to do, and how far down the line it is.
1: Very good, very good. And the timing of this interview is impeccable. I'm thrilled. About the SLF lawsuit, it goes to Los Angeles Superior Court next week, June 16th. And I'll speak to the three main things that we are claiming and asking for, we're demanding in the lawsuit. First, the overarching claim in 2019 when the Coastal Commission gave permits to Southern Cal Edison to bury the nuclear waste on the beach and again in July 2020 when the Coastal Commission unanimously okayed Southern California's inspection and maintenance plan to continue decommissioning all visible structures at San Onofre. Our claim is that they went against the Coastal Act. The Coastal Act is the very ruling that gives the Coastal Commission its purpose and its mission. Essentially, in two sentences, the California Coastal Commission is a state agency within the California Natural Resources Agency with quasi-judicial control of land and public access along the state's 1,100 miles of coastline. So the Coastal Commission's mission is defined in the California Coastal Act, including to protect and enhance California's coast. So our first lawsuit issue is that they are going against this Coastal Act, the very ruling that gives its purpose and mission. Second of all, the lawsuit seeks retaining the spent fuel pools until a dry transfer facility, sometimes called a hot cell, can be built to safely repackage the waste into thick-walled casks. By the way, these thick-walled casks are used all over the world. They were the same casks that held spent fuel in Fukushima, And it is very important to note that that spent fuel was left unscathed after the huge disaster ensued in Fukushima. These thick-walled casts are good for 100 years and can safely be transported once there is infrastructure to transport them to higher ground. Third, our lawsuit calls for state-of-the-art off-site monitoring to act as a check and balance for Southern Cal Edison's rudimentary on-site monitoring. They have two stations, one is in their parking lot, one is actually on the site of the waste. Very rudimentary. And so we need the best monitoring to act as a check and balance for their monitoring. This technology, by the way, is up and running through UCSD, and it was the first system to confirm Fukushima radiation in 2011 on the West Coast. So these are the three things that the lawsuit is, that's our purpose and what we're calling for and what we're trying to gain public support for. Where does it stand now? We have gone back and forth. Luckily, we did get the 90 day agreement from Southern Cal Edison to not, this is just 90 days, to not touch the spent fuel pool uh, in unit three. So that's where it stands now. It goes to court on June 16th, LA Superior Court. The judge, Mitchell Beckloff, he will have 60 days to respond. And so that's where we stand right now. And there's just too much at stake our precious coastline, our economy, and the health of 8.4 million people living within 50 miles of the plant. There have been so many actions to try to bring this issue to the fore, you know, I mean, I don't know if I'm sure you're aware that it's very, very rare, at least in the last seven years since the closure of the plant, that you would find issues of nuclear waste at San Onofre, even in the paper, never front page. And so recently, what we do find is that we are ruffling the feathers of Southern Cal Edison. I, myself and staff at Samuel Lawrence just gave a presentation to the Encinitas Environmental Commission. And it was very well attended. It was a 15 minute presentation followed by 45 minutes of questioning from the commissioners who then implement suggestions for climate action to the Encinitas City Council. Well, lo and behold, Southern Cal Edison got on the horn and they said, we want to respond to every single, you know, we want our own presentation which is fabulous we need an open court a transparent open court we want them to and so that's another story they gave their they said we will go up and down the coast and we will respond to everything samuel lawrence foundation all they of course they call it all lies they call us fear mongers however it's very very interesting libby during their i think they were given 25 minutes of presentation during their powerpoint presentation They claimed to have hyperlinks, which the public could click on and download information for scientific data-based answers to their claims. Well, there was none of that. And at the very end, one of the presenters said, just go to our website, SONGS, our SONGS community website, and you will find all this data. That is their tactic. It's smoke and mirrors. It's buried. It's hard enough for most people to find out when the next community engagement panel meeting is. By the way, please attend, all of you listeners, it is June 17th, 5.30 to 8.30. You have to go to their website and sign up to listen, but you can also send a letter and you can also speak to these issues as a person of conscience and as a citizen who cares about what's going on.
2: And just for clarity, when you're referring to these times, you're referring to the Pacific time zone. So listeners that we have around the country and in other countries will be able to do the conversion and figure out what the time is for them locally.
1: That's correct.
2: I want to point out that when you say 8 million people live within 50 miles, just to give people an idea of what the impact would be if there were a radiation accident that happened at San Onofre, We're talking about it impacting the ports of Long Beach, Los Angeles, San Diego, the agricultural community. Some of the most expensive real estate on the face of the planet is that on the bluffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean in proximity to San Onofre. And would go so far inland that it would be beyond Disneyland. And that's just the first 50 miles. It doesn't just stop at the border of 50 miles. It would keep going.
1: Exactly. Radiation has no borders. The plume is continuous, and it would affect, obviously, our food system. We have an amazing agricultural bounty here in California, and when the plume goes up, it's a circular situation. It rains back down. It goes into the ocean. It goes into our drinking water.
2: When Judge Becklaw comes up with his decision and he gives his ruling, is that it? Is that the end of the line? Or are there other steps that are possible beyond then if he
1: doesn't get it
2: and allows it to move forward?
1: That's a very good question. We are anticipating years and years of continuing this fight. This is no one day in court and, it, and it's over. And that's very, very difficult for us and for you and for our cause. But this is what we are resorting to because it is that important. So a legal victory would set a precedent for all U.S. nuclear power plants in decommissioning. And I'm sure all of the listeners at Nuclear Hot Seat are aware that in the United States, we have 74 such sites. And it's not just, I mean, this is a California issue. However, this could set a precedent for all other sites that have no place to put the waste because our federal government has failed us in designating a permanent repository. So, uh, the Coastal Commission would be forced to withdraw the Coastal Development Permit that allows Edison to destroy the spent fuel pools, which for now are the only working facility to handle the waste stranded at San Onofre. Edison would then be required to reapply for permits. And you could challenge
2: this every step of the way.
1: Exactly. We need the facilities at San Onofre to handle this radioactive waste. And here's the issue. It's really kind of a beautiful slogan that finally Southern Cal Edison, as the result of another citizen's lawsuit, they were required to consult on putting pressure on the federal government to move this waste. And so their battle cry is, let's move it out of there. However, that's all deflection. It's all taking the public's eyes away from the real issue. In our lifetimes Libby we will not see this waste moved for the full reason there's no place to move it and of course the government has interim consolidated interim facilities planned they're not legal they go against NRC's complete ruling that you can't have a consolidated interim storage facility until you have a permanent repository designated and so we have one in Texas and then we have. They're trying to. They're trying to build this one in New Mexico and in Texas.
2: There's another point about these so-called interim sites. First of all, that's the reason that Yucca Mountain is being kept alive as a legal fiction. So that, well, we've got this permanent one that we're going to do, and all it is is a big hole. It's a tunnel in a mountain. It is not a repository. It's nowhere near it. And it's also illegally on land that belongs to the Western Shoshone people. Second of all, They are attempting to place these so-called interim dumps in areas of poverty, of Mm -hmm. people who they are counting on not to be able to fight back. There is an element of environmental racism in terms of the people who live there are Native or Hispanic in their backgrounds. And the interim means that they can leave it there for up to 100 years. And 100 years from now, nobody's going to be interested in moving this. It's kind of like, eh, it's there, leave it. And that does not even take into account the transportation that it would take to bring the waste from all these places through communities around the United States. Something in excess of 40 different states would be impacted by the transport, either by rail or by truck. And if you think there isn't going to be an accident, just Google the term "jackknifed big rig. And also look at some of the rail accidents that have happened, and I've heard from certain sources that the weight of these canisters in their protective canisters is too heavy for the infrastructure of our trains as they exist now. So this whole thing is a nightmare, and anybody who claims that there's any place to put this waste, other than Mm -hmm. leaving it exactly where it is, is lying.
1: Exactly. And to your point, Libby, that's very well stated. To your point, I have sat in on NRC meeting after NRC meeting for the environmental impact reports. You have people that are relying on other people just to get a phone to call in and speak their mind. And mind you, they're holding these public meetings during a global pandemic where much of the constituency they don't even have access to a computer. And when they do have access to the computer, the Wi-Fi is so spotty that these calls are dropped left and right, and you end up with just voices for the Chamber of Commerce for, oh, we welcome the way, some ridiculous elected official who does not speak nor represent his constituents. It's a crime that these interim storage facilities are being fast-tracked during a global pandemic, and not every state and especially these communities, namely disenfranchised communities of color, native communities, they don't have the best vaccination rates. They don't have the best health scenarios to get them to uh, live meetings. And those won't be held for a while because let's face it, we're not open yet. And so this is what these people have been dealing with for at least the last year and a half, It's, it's a crime. Leona Morgan
2: and the group Hall, No, and several others in New Mexico have been fighting this virulently. There's also a group out of the Sierra Club that is fighting the ones in West Texas. And we've covered this periodically on Nuclear Hot Seat. We will keep going with it. But what you were just talking about raises one big elephant in the living room, which is with all of this going on, what is the position, the action, or the non-action of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission.
1: The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has, as many of us know, we call it the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission because they have continued to exempt utilities, not only San Onofre and not only Southern Cal Edison, but they have gone against their very own rulings to exempt utilities left and right to, you don't have to appeal to that. You can, We'll let you go ahead with For example, a metallurgic alloy spray that's never been tested, we'll allow that, but we won't come out in public and say that we approve it. That is exactly our issue. We have been appealing to the federal government for years and years and years, and it's time that states take responsibility for oversight. The states that do have these decommissioning plants, as well as nuclear waste dumps, it's time that the states have oversight that the people living in these reactor communities and waste communities can have representation locally. You know, it's all wonderful and well that Mike Levin has put this on an issue. He's created a task force. He's created various bills that have gone through Congress. However, when you ask him to speak about something, he'll come to your event and he will speak about getting the waste out of there. And I'm not We have a lovely relationship with him, but we're very clear, Samuel Lawrence, I'm speaking about Samuel Lawrence, we're very clear about what we agree with and what we don't agree with and what is safe, what is appropriate for our coastline and what is not in terms of the health of our planet. So it's time for us all to appeal to our governor to the state legislature, to your local city council offices, to Democratic and Republican clubs, to have them come about with resolutions that not only will provoke our elected municipal and local leaders to look at this issue, but to act on it. And that is the power of grassroots and nothing has ever been done unless the people are involved.
2: Speaking of the people, What is it that listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat can do to support the lawsuit, to support what is happening around San Onofre and to strengthen the activist voice so that we are heard and hopefully prevail?
1: Presently, we have on SamuelLawrenceFoundation.org. We have a letter to California Coastal Commissioners that has been sent short of 400 times to every commissioner. You can go online. You can put your zip code and your email address online on that page that I just mentioned. You can edit the letter that is our form letter asking essentially for the spent fuel pools, for monitoring, and for a dry transfer facility. Um, Asking them to revoke their permits or you can write your own letter to the commissioners that's one thing you can attend community engagement panel meetings i believe these meetings are set up by Southern Cal Edison they have all these commissioners speaking from the economic point speaking from you know let's get the waste out of here they do not have one person on the panel that speaks to the health effects of radiation that speaks to the health effect long-term health effects on fetuses, on women uh, living close to the plant. So it's sort of a puppetry situation where they give us the illusion that they are engaging the panel. But the more that we are aware, the more that the listener is aware of the issues and of the risks of this waste, we can actually speak to them at the CEP community engagement panel meetings. And like I said, California time, June 17th is the next one from 5.30 to 8.30. You have to go to community engagement panel meetings on the S-O-N-G-S website and register either to participate as a listener and or to speak at that meeting. Another thing, of course, is to stay up to speed, subscribe to our newsletter, and follow us on social media, Samuel Lawrence Foundation. We have the hashtag Protect Our Coast. This is also the name of our lawsuit because it's a public interest lawsuit. Contact the members of the Coastal Commission. Use our email. that's just a click and send email to them to tell why the issues in our lawsuit are important to you. You can also sign up to speak during public comment portion of the monthly California Coastal Commission meetings. It needs to be said, Libby. That our whole coalition was set and ready to speak at this meeting last week they have them every month for three days and lo and behold coastal commission we would sign up to speak and they send you an okay link because we're in a pandemic they send you the link to it's only your special link to allow you to speak and to log in online to this major meeting well I find it very, very, it's just ridiculous. And we lose confidence when we're looking at a state agency such as the Coastal Commission sending us the link to a meeting for May, Libby, May. And do you know when they change that? They change that the day before the meeting. So for all of the coalition, all of the public wanting to voice their opinion for a publicly funded institution in California – We were unable to do that until the day before. So in essence, we would sign up to speak and they would say, great, here's your link. It's to May 12th, May 13th, and May 14th of May. We're signing up for June. And so then they sent out, oh, sorry, we made a mistake, folks, and they did this the day before. So we really have to be on our toes if we would like to communicate with them during this pandemic situation, but that has happened. We received apologies, but no formal, you know, public apology. So it just seems like that in itself needed to be called out. Of course, contact Congressman Mike Levin. He is our representative for the 49th District in California. He needs to hear your viewpoint. You can write him, go to his website. You can also send your comments to us. We have an open relationship with Representative Mike Levin, and we are always meeting with his staff to communicate concerns from our community. That would be very, very important because even though he only deals on the federal side, he needs to hear from his constituents. He needs to support his constituents. He has opened up the dialogue for this. And though he is a politician, he has put this issue on the forefront way, way, way more than the previous representative.
0: Kathy Iwani, thank you for all the terrific work that you are doing. We will post the link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. We'll be back in touch with you for an update as this moves forward. And for now, thank you for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you so much, Libby. I really, really appreciate it. That
0: was Kathy Iwani a board member of the Samuel Lawrence Foundation, and a tireless educator on the risks of nuclear waste. We'll have links up to the information she referenced on our website, nuclearhotseek.com, under this episode, number 521. We will also have posted the Lawrence O'Donnell feature on the San Onofre lawsuit. In six minutes, the guy got it really right. Here's today's final thought. Ten years of weekly nuclear hot seat production. Wow. I could never have imagined this. And if I had, I don't know that I would have committed to it. But as they say in this 12-step world, one day at a time, one week at a time, one episode at a time, and here we've hit the magic number. 520 completed episodes, with this being 521. This represents ten years of one episode a week. If you want to find out how the show came about, it's chronicled on episode number 500 from January 19, 2021. For now, know that as I launch into year 11 of Nuclear Hot Seat, plans are being made to take the show to a whole new level of visibility, best symbolized by the website overhaul we're doing so Google can't bury us in their new algorithm. There are plans taking place for a more visual and visible format for the show, We are forging new alliances. And through it all, we will continue to provide you with your weekly dose of nuclear news from a different perspective. Until it's not needed, of course. So let me see. Plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years. It takes 20 half-life cycles for it to lose its radioactivity, so that's 480,000 years. Yep, it looks like I'll be around for at least a little while longer. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 15, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclearinternational.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, MarianneWildart.wordpress.com, simplyinfo.org, rnanews.eu, cnn.com, bloomberg.com, spglobal.com, thebarronsobserver.com, reuters.com, Kyle Grossman and Counterpunch, Fairwinds.org, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you'd like to make certain you don't miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, on the website you can sign up to get an email delivered every week. Just one. It will provide a link and a short summary of some of the material that's in the show. Just look for the yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, bam, you're covered. And if you would like information about our upcoming website upgrade, necessary so Nuclear Hot Seat is not intentionally excluded from Google searches, and how you can help us get there, send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. I promise that the answer will not come from a bot or from AI, but from a real live me. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, my door is open, make me aware. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to nuclearhotseat.com and look for that big red button. Once you click on it, anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, Not only can what you don't know hurt you, chances are it probably already has. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.